Well, it's worth uh, opening your Bibles to 1 Kings 18, page 359, I think it was. Page 359 of the Bibles in the church. And the question uh, we're thinking about tonight is, are you single-minded? Are you single-minded? We reach uh, the third instalment in our short series on a couple of chapters from 1 Kings. And really, in the, the, the section we're looking at, we come to the car chase scene. If, uh, if you're watching a movie and it's a bit of a, a sort of a slow movie and then you suddenly get to the car chase scene, this is the car chase scene of 1 Kings, or at least this part of it. So let me assure you, even if the sermon is boring, uh, the passage itself is very exciting, so you'll have something worth reading as we go along. 1 Kings, and we're really going to be looking at chapter 18 from verse 17 onwards. Are you single-minded? I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear that question, but I suspect for many of us the concept of being double-minded in life, of being indecisive, is pretty common. All of us suffer bouts of indecisiveness, whether it be over small things or big things. For me, the moment I enter a video store, like a blockbuster or something like that, all of a sudden my brain seems to just leave my head and I I have no power of decision-making whatsoever and I'm sort of met by this sea of videos, this walls and walls of videos, and I turn into this zombie just walking around the different walls. And I'm not alone. Next time you go to a store like that, have a look at all the zombies walking around like this, looking for the perfect video and they'll do laps hoping that they've missed something on the first uh, run round. For me that's what it's like, I'm totally indecisive when it comes to videos and uh, I suspect uh, when it comes to TV and things like that the remote control has made a lot of us indecisive. Before it was invented uh, TV was fairly simple, you chose a channel and it was just too much effort uh, to get out of the chair to change the channel so you said I'm sticking with this show, but now you've got the power every five minutes just to check in case you're missing something. And I reckon it's not just in the small things that we're like that, even in the big things we can be indecisive and I reckon it all comes back to economics. I studied economics at university and so my brain is always thinking in those sort of categories and one of the things I remember learning was this whole concept of opportunity cost, that whenever you're making a decision there's an opportunity cost. You're always in choosing to go one way, you're missing out on something else. And whether it be choosing one video over another or whatever it might be, I think in life often we're trapped by this concept of opportunity cost. What am I going to miss out on if I go this way with my life? And I think the passage we're looking at tonight, we meet a group of people trapped in opportunity cost, trapped in indecisiveness, in double-mindedness. So have a look, 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 17. As I said before, this is the moment really that these chapters that we've been looking at have been building up to. The stage is set, the pieces are in place. Remember, Obadiah has been given this job to go back to the king to tell him that Elijah was coming to speak to him, that God would once again speak to Israel and to her king. So Obadiah tells Ahab Elijah is coming and Ahab goes to meet Elijah. Can you imagine the scene? The king is about to meet the man who shut up the sky and it's been that way for three years. He's about to meet the man who's caused all this hardship, this drought, this lack of prosperity. And I imagine in this time the king's reputation has taken a hammering, sort of like a prime minister, powerless as interest rates and unemployment, things like that, soar through the roof. That's the sort of situation Ahab is in. And so when he comes face to face with Elijah, he is steaming mad. 
Do you see it there? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? In other words, look around you, Elijah, all of this, this drought, this disaster all around you, you caused this. This is your fault. You're the troubler of Israel. But here's the truth of it. Have a look at verse 18. Here's the root cause of the troubles facing Israel. Elijah says, No, you, Ahab, and those who have come before you, you are the ones who have steered things so badly off course. You have abandoned the Lord and his ways and followed Baal. You are the troubler of Israel. Again and again in these short uh, series of chapters we've been looking at, the Lord has proved that he is God and not Baal. He shut up the sky and the so-called fertility God uh, who was the one who was, going to, uh, who was going to provide prosperity for Israel, Baal, was totally useless. He had proved it again and again and yet despite three years of drought, despite all of this pain, despite the fact it was clear that the Lord had shut up the sky, perhaps somehow Israel had missed it. Maybe it had all been too subtle. And so now the Lord was going to be explicit. Once and for all he was going to put pretenders to his throne in their place. And so a title fight is called. Really that's the image I get in the second half of 1 Kings, almost a boxing match. Yahweh v Baal. And Elijah wants the whole nation of Israel to see it. You see, if they're going to make a decision whether to trust the Lord or to trust Baal, then they need to know the facts. And so the people are summoned, along with the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them. And all of those who by now are in cahoots with Jezebel, the the word used in the passages in table fellowship with her, who've signed up to the way she thinks, signed up to her idols. All of these people gather at Mount Carmel for this showdown and Elijah gives them an ultimatum, verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the literal word here for double-mindedness is limping. That's what Elijah says to them. How long will you limp when it comes to your faithfulness? It's like they've got their legs tied together. How long will you be limp when it comes to what to be passionate about in life? You can't be double-minded forever, says Elijah. Fence-sitting is a painful exercise. One way always wins. And so Elijah says to Israel, time to choose. And for him it's not a theoretical ultimatum, it's practical. If the Lord is God, then you've got to follow him. The people's response, do you see it there? Here's the ultimatum and nothing. No response, no reaction, no decision. They're masters at it by now, masters of indecision. But you see here this decision not to make one is a decision. It's a risk. Either Yahweh is God or he's not. There's no shades in between. And I reckon it's easy to be this way, isn't it? The same way that they they give no decision, the same way that they choose to go neither way. So easy to be that way with the Lord, don't you think? To be limp in our faithfulness, to be double-minded. And I think this is at the heart of our inconsistent commitment to him. If we feel we're drifting that way, this is what it's about. In the end, we are hedging our bets. But Yahweh will not allow us to be fence-sitters.
You see, Elijah wasn't asking the Israelites to make a decision and then go back to normal life. It's not like we can come here tonight and look at this passage and discover together that in fact Yahweh is God, the only living God, and then say, well, what's on TV tonight? It's not that simple. If Yahweh is God, follow him. Let me give you a couple of detailed examples of how easily we can be double-minded, how easily we can be indecisive when it comes to what we trust, what we really value. The first example I want to work with is one that struck me over a number of years and that's the whole concept of uh, raising kids as Christian parents. Now this is a risky one and I'm only three years into Christian parenting so come and tell me afterwards if you think I'm wrong. But one of the things I noticed growing up at St Ives in Sydney uh, as I was leading a youth group there is watching keen, committed, passionate Christian parents raise their children and make decisions about how to raise their children. The thing that struck me is as Christian parents we are convinced that the greatest thing we could possibly introduce our kids to is the hope of heaven and a relationship with Jesus. That's the absolute best thing that we could offer them. We know this is true. And yet at the same time as they grow, we want them to have opportunities, want them to experience all the things that they can and so we encourage them, maybe sometimes need to give them a bit of a push into every activity under the sun, every possible hobby, maybe a whole series of hours and hours of tutoring for a few extra marks for academic results because we want them to reach their absolute potential. And we know that along the way that church is an important place for them, for their formation. And yet as the years go on, more and more things compete with it. We find ourselves getting to the point where we say, you can't go to youth group tonight because you've got to study. Or you've got basket weaving or drama or sport or choir or whatever it might be. There's, there's something always there. And our head knows that hearing and grasping the great truths of Jesus, the great reality of the forgiveness and hope he offers us is the best thing that they could be doing with their time. We know that. But our actions say something else. Our actions tell them that it is a low priority or is it just one of many. The Lord becomes a priority amongst others. Our actions teach them this. The truth is that our children can nail the O-levels, the A-levels, They can excel at university. They can conquer the sporting world or the business world. They can be well-liked, well-regarded, healthy, happily married, live to a ripe old age, even have a house in the country for holidays. They can have it all and they can totally blow life, miss the point completely. Either Yahweh is God or all of these things are. There are no shades in between. That is what Elijah is pushing Israel on and I think the Bible is pushing us on it as well. And let me, let me say a good way to test ourselves as Christian parents is to think about what you pray for your children. Do you pray that they'll be happy? That's a good thing to pray, that they'll be healthy, wealthy, maybe not out loud. Do you pray that they will know Jesus, that they will make it to heaven, that they will be passionate followers of him. Do you pray that? I remember being challenged uh, when I was a a brand new father a few weeks into it and someone says to me, the best thing you can pray for Finn is that he will be a missionary. I remember thinking, I'm not sure I want that. 
Would I be prepared to pray that? Is that really what I want? That more than anything, my son be a follower of Jesus and be a passionate follower of Jesus? Well, let me give you a, a second example, a quick example, and this one's more for those who are at uh, sort of school age or university age. I reckon if that's where you are in life, some of the, some of the ways that you can become double-minded, become indecisive as a Christian, half-hearted, are pretty obvious. And when you trip up in these sort of ways, you know you have. You know, things like underage drinking, sexual immorality, foul language, speeding, especially guys, that was a rite of passage uh, for guys about 16 to 18 in Australia. But I promise you, as you get older, the things that are hurdles, the things that will distract you, get more and more subtle. As you get older, they're harder to spot. You see, the shift from being a young adult who is passionately, single-mindedly following Jesus to sort of dull, grey, lifeless, nominal faith is a journey of a thousand steps and a thousand decisions. And along the way there will be so many good things to be a part of, so many things to devote time and energy to. Academic success, relationship success, career success, material success. And a lot of people will say to you as these things come along, that's when you'll realise that this passionate single-mindedness of youth is something just for youth. That's the sort, of the, the, the sort of the black and white nature of youth. But as you get older, you see the greys, the compromises required to live in the adult world. But as I looked at this passage this week, the thing that kept coming into my mind is that that is rubbish. Rubbish. If your heart beats fast for Jesus now at a young age, then my prayer is that God will feed that fire. To be double-minded is to be half-hearted. You know, one of the great sadnesses for me as I've uh, grown up is seeing some of my peers settle down as Christians. I remember one guy who told me in the final year of school that he, he wanted to be a missionary in France. That's what he wanted to do with his life. And he was just so sure that's what he wanted to do. Well, he's been to France, the south. I've seen the photos. He had a great holiday. And the last conversation I had with him was a 30-minute monologue about how awesome his new fridge is. You are not saved for that. God wants so much more. Do not cool down. Back to the title fight, verse 22. First we're given the facts of the fight. Elijah on on the side of Yahweh is a lone representative but on Baal's side we have some 450 prophets. And already we see that numbers are of no consequence. Yahweh has picked this fight despite being outnumbered because he knows his power and effectiveness are in no way related to how many cheerleaders he has in his corner. And then we have the rules of the fight, verse 23 and 24. Elijah says, Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. The people agree and so Elijah tells the prophets of Baal to go first. They select their bull, they cut it into pieces, they lay it on the wood and they begin to shout out to Baal. From morning to noon we're told they cry out to Baal. No response, no one answered. 
And so they think, well, let's dance a little jig. Maybe what Baal needs is a bit more enthusiasm. You know, we're not, we're not really getting into this enough, so we'll start dancing. It's a ridiculous scene, and the Bible wants us to see it as ridiculous. You've, you see dancing with the stars. I think it's strictly dancing here. Here we've got dancing with the prophets. They're charging around on top of Mount Carmel. And so Elijah, seeing how ridiculous this is, starts to taunt them. Shout louder, he says. Surely he's a god. I mean, perhaps he's deep in thought or, or busy or travelling or maybe he's asleep and needs to be awakened. The literal word for busy here means seeing a man about a dog, otherwise occupied. Maybe Baal is on the toilet, is what Elijah is saying. He's digging the needle in. This is ridiculous. He wants us to see it as such. Shout louder, says Elijah. And do you see what the prophets say? Oh, that might work. And so they shout louder. They are ridiculous. And they get more and more so. They continue on to evening, now slashing themselves with spears, hoping their God will be impressed. All the way to evening. No response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Do you know why? There's no one there. Baal doesn't exist. As I looked at this, it reminded me of just how easy it is to put the weight of our expectations, the weight of our trust, our hopes into things that can't possibly hold the weight of those expectations. That's what the prophets are doing here. That's what Israel were doing. So many of the things that we put our trust in, even the good things, relationships, family, career, they can't possibly hold the weight of all of that. Yahweh is God, not these things. And so now finally in verse 30, Elijah takes his turn. And in the midst of this crazy commotion that's gone on, Yahweh's altar has been knocked over, destroyed. And so Elijah kneels down and begins to rebuild it. Don't miss the symbolism here, it's amazing. He kneels down before the whole nation of Israel and picks up 12 stones, one for each tribe, And he cobbles them back together. He rebuilds the nation in front of them. This nation that Ahab and his forefathers have ripped apart and now Elijah rebuilds it on the name of the Lord, on the word of God. And he goes on, he digs this huge trench around the altar deep enough to hold 30 litres at any point and he arranges the wood and the bull and then he goes even further, he asks them to get four giant jars of water and pour it all over the altar then he says, do it again. And a third time, do it again. You know, Elijah's supposed to be on Yahweh's side but it seems he's stacking the fight against Elijah. If it was a boxing match, it's like he's put his arm behind his back. He's doing it so that no one will doubt the Lord's power to deliver. The altar is finally ready and so Elijah steps forward. There'll be no screaming out, there'll be no dancing or slashing himself. He steps forward and he prays. He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. In other words, to the God who is faithful generation after generation after generation. He prays to the only God in Israel, we're told, the only God on Mount Carmel that day. To the God whose name and glory are to be known. And did you see this? He prays to the God whose heart's desire is at the heart of his people will be turned back to him. God's desire is repentance. And so in verse 38 we get Yahweh's powerful answer. 
He sends down fire upon this altar and absolutely everything is consumed. This is Yahweh's giant tick, his giant green light to what Elijah is doing to this sacrifice. It is his mighty yes that the heart of his people, the hearts of his people be turned back to him. And you know, throughout the Bible, this is a, this is a symbol that God uses that he accepts the prayer, the sacrifice of his people. We see it in 2 Chronicles 7 when King Solomon finally completes the temple that God brings down fire to say, in this place I will meet with my people, in this place I will accept their prayers. And so this fire, this moment, is where God accepts his servant Elijah's offering. Right here, right now on this spot, God says, he is turning the hearts of his people back to himself. On this old rugged altar on a hill, is where it happens. And if you've got your Bible radars on, if you know what God has planned in his son centuries after this, you will see the bigness of this moment. He will do this again, of course, once and for all, on a hill called Golgotha, on a rugged altar called the cross, and his servant will be his own son who will offer his life so that the whole world might turn their heart back to their God. It is as 2 Corinthians 5 says, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. It's an amazing moment, isn't it? And a big part of me would like to leave the passage just there. Everything seems so neat. You have God calling Israel back. You have Israel declaring that Yahweh is God and then verse 40, bang, A sudden jolt. We're busy cheering Yahweh's victory and Israel's repentance and then the prophets of Baal are marched down the side of the mountain and slaughtered. Almost seems like a bit of an overreaction, isn't it? You think, oh, it was all going so well. Why do we have to have that? And I've got to be honest, that's how I felt as I prepared during the week. Well, let's just finish at verse 39 and let's hope no one reads on any further and we'll pick up chapter 19 next week. But if that's what you're thinking, if you're thinking, well, isn't this a bit of an overreaction by God? Did he really need to do that? Well, that's the way I reacted. If if you're reacting that way right now, I think this verse condemns us and not the Lord. It condemns us because rather than it being an overreaction by God, it's an underreaction by us. See, this is no flippant act of revenge by Yahweh. This is the appropriate, necessary judgment according to his Lord. Have a look at Deuteronomy 13 a bit later. You see, we're shocked by this because we don't see sin as seriously as God does. We don't think rejection of God or even worse, leading others to reject God, which is what these prophets are doing, to be the problem that it is. But the problem is huge. I've got a a good friend of mine, uh, Ben, who's a lot more competent than Scott, by the way, if uh, you were here last week. Now, Ben is a, a neurosurgeon. And when he first told me he was moving into that specialty, I remember trying to imagine what a neurosurgeon did. I've got no idea about things like that. But I sort of envisioned that uh, his sort of tools of his trade would be these tiny little tools where he'd tinker away at someone's head. And uh, eventually, I, I, curiosity got the best of me. And I said, oh, can you show me your, you know, the tools of your trade, what you use when you, you do your operations? He said, sure. I'm not sure if he's allowed to do that, but he said, sure. And uh, so I looked at it and there were a few of these tiny little tools that he tinkers away with but to be honest, most of them were things like 
it looked like a Makita drill, you know, a giant drill. There was crowbars, hammers, you name it. It looked more like a builder's kit than a neurosurgeon's kit. And he told me that the surgery is rough stuff. You know, he's got his foot up on the side of the bed and he's wrenching heads open and all this sort of thing. And <laughs> it's not smooth and subtle at all. And that's what's happening here in this verse. To quote our commentator Dale Ralph Davis, who's been very helpful as I've looked at these passages, he says, God uses surgery, not breath mints, on cancer. God sees this huge growing cancer right at the heart of his people and he says that needs to be ripped out, totally and utterly gone. And in our final verses we see that Yahweh is yet to deliver on his promise. Way back in verse 1, remember last week his promise that he would send rain? Still no rain. So Ahab is told to go and eat and drink while Elijah continues to pray, praying that God will deliver on that promise. He bends over, desperate that God will fulfil his promise. He sends his servant to look over the sea. Seven times he comes back and there's nothing. And then finally, as tiny as a man's hand, in the distance is a cloud. Ahab is told to get on his chariot and head home before being hit by the rain. But even as he's preparing, the rain hits. And he starts to head home to Jezreel, where his wife Jezebel waits. At the same time, Elijah is powered by God. It's an amazing verse, verse 46. I'd, I'd love to have seen it in action. He sort of, Elijah tucks his sort of himself in and he just flies along ahead of the chariot at a million miles an hour ahead of the king. But again, there's huge symbolism going on here. Elijah is the Lord's mouthpiece, the means by which God's word is heard, the means by which God's word guides his people and especially his king. This is like the days of old, like under David, the king and the prophet working together. This is the way it's meant to be. The king being led by God's word. This is Ahab's moment of truth. He has a decision to make. After all he's done to lead Israel away from their God, he is being offered a way back. This is what Yahweh wants. It is his burning passion that the heart of the king be turned back. Let me quote from Dale Ralph Davis about this scene. Imagine that crucial yet fleeting scene. Elijah stops bent quarter over, heaving for oxygen. Momentarily Ahab's chariot comes barreling past and turns down the lane heading to his summer house. Elijah and Ahab can both see it. There's a light on in the Queen's quarters. Ahab has an offer of grace in his hand but his feet will soon be in the devil's bedroom to be continued. Let's pray.